Good morning, church. Such a great honor to share with you today on such a special day where we get to celebrate mothers. I wonder if we could just take a moment and look around the room right now. Uh, I want you to realize that all of us are here today because of a mom, right? <laughs> we are all here because someone agreed to be a mom. Well, in a fast-paced and money-hungry world that we live in, often the importance and the role of mothers is overlooked and undervalued. So uh, today, I would like to acknowledge and honor all of the seen and the unseen things that mothers do. So on behalf of all children everywhere, I want to thank you for sacrificing your body to make a body for me, feeding me first, even though you were starving as well, pacing the floors all night while I cut my teeth, and then doing it again when I cut curfew to be with my friends, comforting me through all my colds, flus, and broken hearts, even while you were struggling through your own, helping take care of all the code browns, panic attacks, and sleepless nights, throwing me birthday parties and inviting all of your friends so that I would feel loved and celebrated, pulling all-nighters to help me finish all my last-minute school projects, science experiments, and assignments on time. And may I just add, that last term paper that you wrote was by far some of your finest work to date. You really earned that A for me. I want to thank you for your patience, protection, and perseverance. There's no one in the world that could do what you do, and there's not enough money to compensate for the loving care that you give us every single day. It's not until I got older that I realized how difficult it was to really love someone, but you make it look easy. You are a daily example of God's unending love towards his children, and none of us would be sitting here today without you. Let's give our moms a round of applause today. We are so thankful for them. Pastor Jeannie Mayo shared a story a while ago about a couple who had been struggling with their teens for several years. One was now a university student and the other was in high school and they both had been a handful. They had gotten into the habit of causing all kinds of problems and their parents were fed up. So the couple decided that they needed a vacation away from their kids. For the first time ever, they splurged on a trip to Greece and decided to send a postcard back to their two bratty teens. And this is what they wrote. Dear sons, we are now standing high on a cliff from which the ancient Spartan women hurled their defective children to the rocks below. Wish you were here. Oh, it's okay to have a little fun this morning. It's, it's funny because it's relatable, right? It's relatable because if you have ever been in any kind of a long-term relationship with someone, you know that loving them for a long time is hard work. 
If you've ever raised children, you know that it's not always sunshine and rainbows. Children are amazing, yes, but the work is really difficult, and sometimes it stinks. Let's be honest. You were not always easy or pleasant to work with as a child. And if you're like me, when you got older and became a teen, you got worse. (laughs) But I think we can all agree that a tremendous amount of energy, support, patience, and love was required to bring us to this moment in our lives. I'm not talking about immature, uh, fleeting, selfish love, the kind of love that says, uh, I'll love you as long as I feel like loving you, or as long as you do what I want you to do, or as long as you make me feel good. But I'm talking about long-suffering, unending, selfless, lay-your-life-down kind of love. This is the kind of love that says, I'll love you even when you're difficult, messy, and undeserving of love. But life gets hard, and relationships get more challenging. And it's not always easy to continue to love someone. So we have to ask ourselves, how? How does someone faithfully love Even when pressures come, you know, they can come in all kinds of forms. They can come in financial pressures. They can come in health pressures, uh, sicknesses. They can come in strained relationships with, uh, you know, extra relatives and, and other people in the scene. There are a lot of pressures that can come at us and make it increasingly more challenging to still show love. Life can start to look dark and maybe a little bit hopeless at times. So how do we become someone who faithfully loves and and keeps going even when things look bad and even when they don't really feel like loving anymore? Well, there's a story in the Bible, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 21, of a woman named Rizpah. Rizpah was a concubine of King Saul's. She was therefore expected to produce heirs for him. Uh, They wanted to have very large families, and so they needed to have uh, lots of women willing to give them large families. So she was a concubine, and she was expected to add to the descendants of King Saul. And she did. She gave him two sons, two sons. Uh, But because she was a concubine, uh, she was considered to be a second-class citizen in her day. And so what this meant was she had no power, she had no authority, and she had no ability to challenge any decision that was made about her life. Now, this sounds really difficult, uh, but circumstances in her life uh, didn't just stay difficult. They actually took a turn for the worse. They, they got even worse than that. But in order to understand what was going on in Rizpah's situation, we have to actually go back many more years in history to the time that Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land. We've all heard of Joshua 
We've all heard of the promised land. And Joshua was uh, getting ready to take the Israelites into the land. And while they were doing this, they crossed over the Jordan and they took Jericho. You can read about it in the Bible where they destroyed Jericho and then they destroyed this little place called Ai. And they were heading to the land of the Gibeonites next. And the Gibeonites saw what they did in Jericho and saw what they did in Ai and they, they knew they could not defend themselves against the Israelites. There was no hope. They were going to go down. So they decided, rather than just let themselves be wiped out, they would try to trick the Israelites into making an agreement with them not to harm them. So they went to Joshua and they pretended to be from far away and they laid out this whole devious plan and they managed to trick Joshua and the leaders into signing a peace treaty with them or a covenant with them that said that Israel could not harm them. And so uh, after it was signed and the deal was done, it was only then that Joshua realized he had been misled and they had been tricked. But the deal was done. It was too late. And so they were in this agreement or this covenant. Fast forward 400 years later to the time of King Saul. King Saul was the first king of the Israelites. And we find out that he decides he's going to violate this covenant of peace, this treaty. And he's going to try and murder these Gibeonites and get rid of them. Fast forward now to the time of King David. King David was the second king to come after King Saul was dead. And we find out that the Israelites were living under an incredible drought and famine for three years. It was just absolutely no rain. If you know anything about uh, the land of Israel, they are incredibly reliant on the rains in order to have food. If they don't get the rains, they don't grow the crops. If they don't grow the crops, they don't have any food. So uh, drought was a really bad thing for them, all right? And they had been in a famine now for three years. So they had not been getting the rain that they needed. So King David goes before the Lord and he asks, what is the reason for this drought? What is the reason for this famine? And God answers him and says, it's because of what King Saul did to the Gibeonites. And so you are cursed because he broke a covenant that he had made and he tried to commit genocide and kill the Gibeonites. So now your land is cursed. Well, King David obviously wanting to break the curse and lift that off of the land so that his people could eat, uh, he went to the Gibeonites and he asked them what could be done to make restitution for this tragedy. What could they do to make things right for what King Saul had done to them? And the Gibeonites gave their answer and they said, here's what you can do. You can give us seven of King Saul's descendants to be hanged as punishment for what he did. Now, because King David was friends with Jonathan, which was King Saul's son, uh, and he had made a covenant with him that he would protect Jonathan's descendants. He knew he could not break that covenant and he couldn't give him Jonathan's children. So instead he chose Rizpah's two sons 
and he picked five of King Saul's grandsons. And so together, he made the seven, and he handed them over to the Gibeonites. And they took them, and they hung them on the hillside. And this brings us to our passage in the scripture. So 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 to 14 says this. So the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul. And the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bet-Chan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gelboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, in his, son, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. The Gibeonites, you see, they didn't want money. They didn't want hush money or anything that would just, they could take it and then be quiet about what happened. No, they wanted revenge. They wanted revenge for what was done to them. They wanted blood for blood. And they didn't just want to hurt Israel. They wanted to humiliate Israel. Because Saul was known to be the chosen king, chosen by God as the first king for Israel. So they wanted to humiliate the descendants of their chosen king. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So the Gibeonites knew that to be hung on a tree was a sign that you were bad. You were cursed. It was not the way anyone wanted to go. So they wanted to make a public statement. You messed with us. Now your precious descendants are going to die like cursed men. Now, as a former concubine of now a dead king, Rizpah had a difficult life. But she had just been dealt an incredibly cruel blow. Unfortunately, decisions that tragically impacted her life, there was nothing that she could do to stop them from happening. She had no power, no authority, and no right to challenge a decision that incredibly impacted her. 
Can you imagine just for a moment what this scene looked like? The king's descendants hung on a hillside, publicly displayed. Everyone traveling into and out of Jerusalem would see them. And if they didn't know who that was, they would ask around, who's that hanging on the tree? And someone would say, that's the descendants of King Saul. It was humiliating. They were exposed and they were cursed. And so she took sackcloth, and sackcloth was a very uncomfortable, coarse, rough uh, material. And she took a cloth of sackcloth and she laid it over the rocks. And she made for herself this sort of makeshift tent, if you will. And she put herself there. And it says that she was there from the time of the, barley, the start of the barley season until the late rains fell. Well, normally in, in their growing cycle for Israel, the start of the barley season is in April. That's when uh, the, the first harvest can happen. Barley ripens first, so that happens in April. And the late rains fall in October. So she was there from April to October. But they were in a drought, so there was no rain. So she was sitting in an incredibly dry place with no cloud coverage and no relief from the sun. And it was intense heat, extreme heat. I don't know if you've been in a desert, but when the sun is up, it is unbelievably hot. Can you imagine the smell of these rotting bones and these, this rotting flesh in that heat. During the day, it says that she'd have to fight off the uh, scavenger birds in the air. And at night, she would have to fight off the predators that come out at dark. I mean, here's this woman alone in incredible conditions with no not a nice place to stay. She was under a little piece of sackcloth. And all day long, she's swatting away these birds that were coming to pick away at her sons. And at night, she would have to be on guard because you never know what's coming out at dark. I mean, I'm not a camper and that's why, because I don't know what's out there and I don't want to meet them, you know? So she's at night alone in the dark. I don't think she had weapons. How is she beating them off? She probably just has a twig or a stick or something, you know, but she's got to be ready watching for two little beady eyes coming at her, you know, and uh, always guarding these bodies. Um, can you imagine how exhausting that would be? Day and night having to be on guard and having to be alert and, and scary, just plain scary. I mean, fighting animals, what kind of animals live out there? That's what I want to know. Imagine if you lived in that time and, and you were driving by, you know, on your donkey. You were driving by on your donkey and you were observing this woman doing this stuff, um, watching her do this. I, I know exactly what would happen in your donkey vehicle. You would be sitting there going, what in the world is going on over there? 
You'd be like, I'm going to circle back and I'm going to get this on camera. And you'd be like, where's my phone? Where's my phone? Somebody get my phone. Turn it on camera. We're going we're gonna to come back and we're going to record. I'm going to put this up on Instagram. Nobody is going to believe what's going on over here. You'd be looking at her and some of you would be bold enough to actually say, hey, lady, what are you doing? It's too late. They're gone. I don't know what you're doing, but hey. It's too late. You'd be muttering to yourself, that woman's lost her mind. She's absolutely out of her mind. I'm pretty sure this is when the term crazy mom was first coined. <laughs> because that's exactly what she looked like. She looked crazy. Absolutely crazy. Why? Why would she do it? What she did was so beyond the normal, acceptable uh, customs of her time. People didn't do what she was doing. Nobody would have been doing that. And here she was for six months doing this, day in and day out. Why would she be willing to sacrifice personal comfort? Why would she be willing to be publicly scorned and laughed at? Why would she persevere through such extreme heat and the nauseating smells of dying flesh? Why would she fight those predators day and night? What could possibly motivate someone to take such extreme measures? She was consumed by love, unconditional love for her sons. Her passion is what was compelling her to do something crazy and unheard of. And she was determined to hang on to those bones and fight for them until she was able to get justice for them. She couldn't bring them back to life that decision was already made, but she did not feel like it was right or just for her sons to hang like cursed men for something that they did not do. And she was holding on for justice for them. And her actions caught the attention of King David. People were talking and people came to the king and said, hey, have you heard what Rizpah's doing down there on the hill? You know she's been down there for six months by herself, fighting away. And her behavior not only caught the attention of the king, but it moved him to action. And what he did was he decided he's not only going to go and round up the bones of all seven of those that were hanging, but he also went to the people who had stolen King Saul's bones and Jonathan's bones, and he recovered those as well. And he gathered all the bones up together, and he buried them in their father's tomb, in, in Kish's tomb, which was a decent proper burial. So he rounded everything up and he gave them a proper burial. What Rizpah did didn't just impact her two sons, but her persistence recovered all. 
it spread beyond just her family, just her two boys. She was able, because of how extreme she was and passionate she was, she was able to recover all. All of them were recovered. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells us the parable of the persistent widow. And this is a woman who, in her day, would not have been very high-ranking either. A widow didn't have uh, really a high standing in society back then, uh, didn't have anybody to fight for her or uh, provide for her. So she would have been of uh, meek and mild means. She would have been lower on the totem pole, so to speak. And uh, here's this woman. We don't know what happened in her life, but we know that whatever happened, she felt was very unjust. And so she went before the judge continually, it says, day and night, begging and pleading for justice. She wanted him to rule in favor of her case. She wanted him to take a look at it and to rule justly and fairly and avenge her. And so the Bible says that this judge, he was not a good, a good judge in particular. He wasn't a very... Uh, a uh, reputable one. He wasn't honorable. He didn't believe in God. And so he makes this statement and he said, though I don't fear God, I don't care who this woman is and I don't care who she worships because she continually, persistently pesters me, I'm going to give her a ruling of justice because this woman is going to drive me to my grave. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. That's what he was saying. He was saying, I don't care about God, but this woman will not relent and I must have peace from her. So I'm going to look into her case and I'm going to give her justice. And Jesus shares this illustration with us to teach us the power of persistence to never give up until we receive an answer to our prayers. See, the power of persistence, it impacts more than just your own situation. When you're interceding and when you're knocking and when you're appealing to the judge for vengeance, it has more of an impact on just your immediate surroundings. It also impacts others around you. Rizpah didn't know this necessarily, but that's what God showed us in her case. And this woman indeed did receive a just ruling from that judge. Many years ago, many years ago, my husband and I made a decision to take 17 people to Mexico on a missions trip. It was uh, the first time that we had ever been outside of Canada or the United States. It was the first time that we had ever been on a missions trip. And it was the first time that we had ever been put in charge of anybody else other than ourselves. So we had a, a team of mostly teenagers um, and just a few adults. And we only had one interpreter and they could barely speak Spanish. So we were set for some good times. But on this trip, we had with us one particular young man. He was 13 at the time. Uh, and he, uh, to put it mildly, was known to be a difficult teen. On a good day, 
he required extra patience and grace. But uh, the need for this was only amplified even more on this trip. Uh, we had to take two flights to get to Mexico City. And on both of the flights, he managed to delay takeoff because um, right when the captain was about ready to um, taxi out of the little parking zone, I guess, and uh, head to the runway, uh, he decided that was a great time to take off his seatbelt and run up and down the aisles, shouting at the top of his lungs and dancing and carrying on. This is a while ago before they had marshals on the plane and all that. But anyway, um, so he delayed takeoff on two of our flights, and we hadn't even gotten to Mexico yet. Uh, when we got to Houston, which was uh, one of our stopovers, he decided it would be a great idea to leave his backpack in the security line, but not just leave it like, oh, I forgot, actually leave it in a way that looked really suspicious and um, attracted a whole lot of unwanted attention from all the authorities there. It also gave all the TSA agents a heart attack. I mean, I'm chuckling now, but it wasn't funny in the moment. Uh, when we got to Mexico and we got to the place where we were going to be helping, uh, it was, they had asked us to come and um, help clear the land and level it and dig up some of the trees and dig some trenches so that they could pour uh, cement foundations and they could extend the building of their church. So they were going to grow um, uh, as a church, they were growing, and so they needed a bigger building. And so we were there to help uh, prepare the land for that to happen. So we had mostly girls on the team and a few boys. But uh, while the girls were busy digging the trenches and pulling out the trees and uh, clearing the land and leveling it, by the way, we had the most um, hideous tools to work with because none of us could bring tools. So we worked with whatever we had and it was a very remote village. So we had tiny little, you know, tools that were this tall or, you know, the head would fly off of something. And so they'd have to get a tree branch and shove it on that and, you know, uh, wrap it around that. It was something else. So they were not even effective tools, but that's what we had to work with. And so while our girls were busy digging trenches and they were mixing cement and they were pouring foundations. He was busy getting everybody else to take a picture of him uh, playing dead in the trenches. So he'd like to lay in the trenches and then just have everybody photograph him like somehow he was being buried. Um, and then the icing on the cake was um, in, in his free time, I guess, if he, if he had free time. Uh, he spent his time teaching all of the teenage boys in Mexico how to uh, speak naughty things in English. Now, we were in a village that they did not know English and we did not know Spanish. So anything they taught he taught them to say, they had no idea what they were saying. So he took advantage of this and taught them to say horrible things. So these poor teenage boys would walk up to our girls and repeat what they had been taught to say, and all of our girls would burst into tears, and we had no idea what was going on. Well, that landed us in an incredible amount of trouble with the leaders down there. They couldn't figure out what's wrong with us and what's wrong with our team that we would do that. So we had a whole lot of explaining to do in that situation. He was so difficult to handle 
that most people in his life had given up on him and written him off. And I can't explain how, and I don't even know why. Maybe it's because I'm old enough to remember uh, what kind of a brat I used to be when I was a teen. Or maybe because I do know what it feels like to be labeled as difficult. Uh, but I, maybe it's because I was reminded, I think, of just how many times that I was so undeserving of love and grace. And yet, throughout my lifetime, God continually provided uh, people and put people in my life that would demonstrate love towards me, uh, even when I didn't deserve it. But some kind of God-inspired love came over Pastor Todd and I. And I knew it was from God, because in my own strength, I for sure would have given up on him. On all accounts, he had used up every chance. He had burned every bridge. He had exhausted every last ounce of grace. In fact, I wanted to hand him over to the authorities at the airport. If anybody would have asked me, hey, do you know that kid? I would have said, officer, I've never seen this kid before in my life. But you know what? I think I did see drugs on him, so you might want to search him. <laughs> but for some crazy reason, God gave us a love for him that went beyond our natural abilities, and we could not shake it. And it prevented us from running in the opposite direction of him. And it compelled us to grab hold of him, stinky bones and all, rotting flesh and all, and just hang on until we could bring him before the king of kings. And I want to tell you something. When he finally encountered King Jesus, he changed and he was never the same again. Is there somebody that God has brought across your path or into your life that is in pretty rough shape? They're pretty nasty. They are in some great need of some healing. They need to be restored. Maybe they're walking around, they're breathing, they're talking, everything looks okay from a distance, but on the inside, they're dry, empty, spiritually dead. Maybe it's somebody that has exhausted you. Your strength for them and your patience for them is just gone. They've completely depleted all grace that you had for them. And you're, you're literally wanting to just give up on them. They're difficult and you just want to walk away. Or maybe there's something going on in your own life, in your own situation, and you have been dealt a blow where you feel there's been some injustice, and you've been asking God for a just ruling. You've been asking him for help. You're looking for 
him to avenge you. You're looking for him to defend you and to make things right. And you've been asking and you haven't seen a response yet. I want to encourage you today. We serve a God of miracles. Every single one of us here is a miracle. Every single one of us is an example of how God has his hand on us. And God is in the business of restoring people. He loves to do it. And he loves to take the worst, stinkiest, most rotten person and heal them, deliver them, and set them on their feet again. He loves to give us his strength. And he wants justice for us. Do you know that God is a defender of widows and orphans? He is a defender of the fatherless. Those people, their, their needs come right into the throne room and come right before him every day. He is aware of their needs. He is a God of justice. He does look out for the fatherless. He does believe in righteous rulings and wants to see things come into order. But above all else, his love for us is unconditional and unending. You cannot exhaust it, though you may try. Though you may try, you cannot exhaust his love for you. If you are here today and you know you're empty and you know you've got some difficult situations or people in your life that you either have given up on them or you've been contemplating giving up on them, I want to encourage you that God can fill you today with his supernatural strength, patience, and love. And you can be a vessel that he can use to pour out his love on those people. Today, you can grab hold and obtain the same kind of tenacious love that Rizpah had for her sons. It's a love that doesn't look like the love that we see a lot around us, right? It looks a little different. It's a love that is willing to give up personal comforts. It's a love that's willing to sacrifice uh, time. It's a love that even will put up with uh, ridiculous, fleshly, horrible things at times. It's a love that's willing to fight is willing to fight off the attacks of the enemy. But you can have that love today. You can be filled with it. You can ask God, give me the strength that I need so that I can grab hold of those stinky bones and I can hang on until I get my audience with the King of Kings. Until I see a just, redemptive work in their life. I'm going to hang on until I get what I know is needed. Don't let go until they encounter the King of Kings. 
Let's pray this morning. Father, you know who we are. You know where we're at. God, you know that every single one of us has depleted grace, has exhausted patience, has uh, depleted people's strength, has um, rung up a huge debt against love. But God, every single one of us is here because of your prevailing love. We ask today that you would fill us again with your love, that you would fill us again with your strength, that you would give us a passion and a persistence for others that we cannot shake, no matter how hard the enemy tries to shake it out of us. We cannot let go of these bones until we see a redemptive change in them for the glory of God. I pray today, Father, that you would impart to us your love, your strength, your courage, and your faith, oh God. May we be used as a vessel to bring people before your throne, Father. I pray that we would not give up and never surrender until we see the answer until we see the justice. I thank you, Father, that you have never given up on us and you promise never to forsake us. Thank you for your love. We bless you for it. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Come on, God is good, right? You're living proof that he's good. I want to thank you for joining us today. I want to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day. Please show some love to all the moms out there today and have a wonderful time celebrating them. If you would like prayer for any reason, we are available here at the front uh, to pray for you and whatever your need is. And uh, if you are uh, a mother or an adult female out in the lobby, we have a nice gift for you as well. So God bless you today. And uh, go in grace. Come on, God is faithful and he will give you the strength to do what you need, you need to do. All right? Amen.